0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, in the quest to find out whatever the hell is going to happen is the great and good Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate.
1: Hello, mate. Happy Father's Day to you today.
0: Happy Father's Day to you, too. Happy
1: Father's Day, We're allowed Day to indeed. discuss the fact that this is happening on Father's Day, right? We, I think I we're just... allowed
0: to do that. I think I think the, the, the urgency of getting this out in case The Endgame happens while I'm editing the podcast is quite <laughs> important.
1: <laughs> <laughs> After being such a theoretical quest for so long, about, well, what happens in Japan, you know, or what might end this? Of course, I was asking that question forever, but what amazes me is I finally concluded that they'd won, that the Japanese had won and pulled it off. Yeah. I think that if he would just said, okay, we're gonna raise rates, I'm declaring victory, they'd have gotten away with their whole monetization of half the JGBs and however many of the, the yeah. stocks, and now it might all blow up in his face. And I wonder if there isn't a lesson in that, in that the guys got so arrogant, they believed they could do anything, sort of like the Fed, the way they went hog-ass wild with this QE, because the prior one didn't really bite him in the ass for a variety of reasons. Well,
0: you yeah, know, what's interesting to me is that everywhere you look, people are doubling down, right? You look at Karoda he's doubling mm-hmm. down. You look at Michael Saylor, right? Doubling down. Um, everyone who's in trouble is so utterly convinced after the last 40 years that, you know, it'll all turn out okay in the end, or someone will have their back. That they just feel like we can keep doing this, and you know it'll be okay because you know it never really goes that bad. But that seems potentially, at least, we you know, it hasn't played out yet. But it seems that we're getting to the point where the rubber meets the road, and you know that's what you and I have been trying to figure out this whole time is is what happens, and we're we're getting kind of a look at it now.
1: Well, and I hadn't thought of it your way about everyone's sort of been trained, and so they're doubling down. I hadn't hadn't even thought about that aspect. But it's, it's interesting that all these central bankers are going to be tested for slightly different reasons, yep. but all, all for consequences of their crazy policies. So it's a perfect that we have today's guest on to talk about this.
0: Yeah, no, exactly right. Joining us in a couple of seconds is our mutual friend, James Aiken, the lord of the dark matter and someone who yes. has probably, arguably, a better handle on all this than than most, I would say, Bill. What do you reckon?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why it's going to be fun to talk to him about this. It, re-
0: it really is. Um, but, you know, I, I, as I've watched all this stuff go on, what, what's really interesting is if you look across various house classes, you'll see signs of what will happen. look at australia what happened with yield curve control there there's a clue for Kuroda there if he wants to listen to it i don't seems to me mr corroda son doesn't want to listen to much of anything <laughs> no no I, I think he's sitting there with a finger in each ear just saying la 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 but uh, i suspect that won't last as a strategy for much longer well it looks like james is here so we should probably talk to him instead of you and i yapping away what do you say Hey. Well, James, welcome back to the Endgame. You are on the Mount Rushmore of Endgame participants, the the first three-time contributor, and we are grateful to you for for giving us a bit more of your precious time.
2: Well, let's be grateful that you've found other people to contribute.
0: (laughs) It would just be me and Bill in a room talking to each other. Both of them?
2: Very good. No, it's lovely to see you, both.
1: Well, I guess we should start off with the elephant in the room, that being... One of the questions we've pursued for a while is, you know, of course, how does this, this period of money printing end? And a lot of people could never fathom it. And what we didn't know was, would the bond market do it? Would the currency market do it? Would it be Japan? Where would it go? And lo and behold, it appears to be Japan. And so I guess the, the question everyone wants to know is, what's going to happen next now that Kuroda has insisted on maintaining yield curve control and the ends being splattered, and rates are trying to go higher. What's going to happen next? Give me the newspaper for the next uh, 30, 60 days in Japan, James.
2: Well, let's, well, that's an easy one to start with. Um, let, let's think about how we, how we got here, okay? And just think about 2022 in particular. For a number of reasons, not least that they were starting to lose money on a mark-to-market basis, and it was very expensive to roll the FX hedges. Starting in late January and early February, Japanese institutional investors began to unwind fully FX hedged uh, treasury positions. So to be clear, they were selling a lot of treasuries and intuitively think if Japanese investors are selling treasuries, well, it's a a supply headwind for the treasury market, but they're also going to be selling dollars to buy yen. However, because of mark-to-market losses, They had overhedged the FX. And I know this is a bit complicated, but not only were they selling treasuries, but they had to buy dollars back to exactly to unwind their hedges. So you had this rather unusual situation, which I think was largely responsible for dollar yen breaking through the top of what had been a very consistent ceiling around 115, give or take. And it was Japanese investors selling treasuries and buying back dollars. And all of a sudden we're in the high 120s and most of the people who have been thinking about a weak yen for a long time didn't have the position on. So that was the first step. And then the second step, which is a little bit more difficult, is that uh, inflation kept bubbling up everywhere, unsurprisingly. Central banks everywhere had to become more hawkish. And frankly, once the ECB and now the SNB Uh, said we're going to walk away from zero rates and we need to go in a different direction because inflation is overpowering us, then the Bank of Japan is the last man standing. And I've thought about the 25 basis point cap on a 10-year JGB as kind of like the world's last remaining duration anchor, right? Now, there's an important subtlety here, uh, Bill. You can't have a strong yen and endless yield curve control particularly if you're the most dovish central bank in the world. So there's a trade-off, you would think, at some point. So it's no surprise that if everyone else is uh, uh, suitably hawkish, and we'll come to all of those folks in a minute, and the Bank of Japan is holding out, that the yen going to be weaker and probably going to trend lower. So that's the first step. But the important thing to keep in mind is that so far, the inflation situation in Japan and to be clear we're talking about realized inflation not inflation expectations although they're moving up but realized inflation in Japan has just started to tick up through uncomfortable levels and it's certainly a lot lower than the United States or elsewhere so hence Kuroda is saying no 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 time soon you know no plans to uh, step away from yield curve control we'll keep you posted so what Well, my thinking is that Kuroda-san too, despite all his protests, will over the next three months be overcome by the world's inflation impulse as well. And if that is the case, time will tell, then he will have to go, ha, about yield curve control, ha. And the problem with a PEG or yield curve control is that you cannot provide guidance when you're ending. Right. You can't. Ima- imagine if they said, Grant, we're, we're going to go back by one basis point. Then they're going to get filled by the entire planet on that JGB bid, right? So there's no guidance. These things just go. And we have some recent history of that, which is we the do. Swiss National Bank with the, with the Swiss Euro Swiss peg, or sorry, the Swiss peg at 120 in January 2015. And then, of course, the, the Reserve Bank of Australia with curve control late last year. So what am I saying? I think it's an important distinction. The decision whether to abandon yield curve control will not be a function of how, yen the week, how weak the yen becomes. Although, of course, if Corroda is determined to hold on for a couple more months and the Fed is necessarily more hawkish, then the yen's going to probably get weaker yet. And we can yet head up to 145, 150. We shall see. It will be a decision taken entirely on the evolution of inflation data in Japan. And my suspicion, which to be clear, could be totally wrong. My suspicion is that yield curve control in, in Japan may have three months left. We shall see. It,
0: it's fascinating, James. You touched on that recent move by the RBA. And it's worth talking about that because it, it, the RBA is an underfollowed central bank for many reasons, some of them good, some of them not so good. But just for people that haven't followed that, just... Run us through what happened there, because it, it, it's the perfect example of what happens when yield curve control gets abandoned. For everything you just said,
1: could I interject one thing first? You make the really excellent point that obviously you can't give guidance about breaking a peg, or a, you know that's this a peg. Let's just speculate for one second. Like, let's say it is ninety days or so. He's on borrowed time, and he can't leak it, so he breaks the peg. Where do JGBs trade? Just best guess. I know I'm, it's a wild ass speculation, but I'm just curious. How far do you think they might go?
2: Well, yen swaps, over-the-counter 10-year yen swaps have already moved a lot wider because people sense that they need to hedge. And therefore, yen swap spreads. The difference between a 10-year JGB and a 10-year over-the-counter interest rate swap have widened accordingly. Um, if we go back to 2003, there was, a, there was the infamous JGB VAR shock and over three weeks, 10-year JGB yields widened by approximately 75 basis points. And at the time, they went from 50 to roughly 125. Maybe that's a benchmark for thinking about it. But, of course, nothing happens in isolation, does it? It would it's, it's, be interesting to consider how far JGBs might go if Japanese yield curve control ends my very best guess would be and it is a guess would be somewhere around 100 basis points but then so what what happens after that if if the japan is the last holdout and they abandon yield curve control well it'd be ironic if they do it just that the rest of the world was starting to slow down a bit or oil prices are coming off right so you need to keep you need to keep an open mind but of course the primary spillover bill in the the event that Japan did step back from yield curve control would be the knee-jerk response would be a sharp rally in the yen. And we saw some hints of that last week. Uh, Dollar-yen has become uh, uh, for the first time in a long time, a high realized volatility asset. It's really moving around. After the Swiss National Bank decision, a number of yen bears decided that they'd buy some short dated yen calls versus the dollar. And so we came off 135-ish down to 131. And then no decision, back up we go. Um, that that would be a preview for the sort of outcome. But then, of course, we need to consider, all right, if a 10-year JGB goes from, let's say, from 25 to, a, to 100 basis points or somewhere in that direction, what does it mean for a 10-year treasury? What, it, what does it mean for a bond and so on and so forth? And for my sketch, and it's just a preliminary sketch, would be, you know, if your curve control goes in Japan, it might be the final rug pull of duration in the United States and Europe. Maybe it's the thing that takes a 10-year Treasury to 4%. And if at long last the world's duration anchor is pulled, you know, what's left? Maybe there's nothing left after that. And, you know, as bizarre as this sounds now, again, i keep saying open mind because there's not many precedents for it. But, you know, that's the last rug pull and we get a spike. In interest rate volatility does it then come off because you know what's what's the unknown unknowns after that but maybe look maybe I'm maybe I'm overthinking it but but to me it's like thinking about in the first instance how far does a 10-year JGB potentially go what might be the near-term impact on the yen and by extension other Asian currencies versus the dollar right? What might be the spillover on a 10-year treasury and a bund? And and frankly, how should I how much should I care? What does it mean for other assets? And then obviously we can get into that.
1: All right. Thanks for the answer. Now now I think that doing your uh, RBA uh yeah.
0: analysis I,
2: I, would be useful. I, I, and I think I think the so,
0: RBA is useful simply because I mean, first of all, the chart is a thing of wonder for anyone that hasn't seen it. But also, you know, the currency reaction the RBA reaction, the market reaction, everything that's wrapped up in, in that move by the RBA, I think will probably be magnified in Japan simply because so many more people care about it.
2: I think that's probably right. And, and just at the very highest level, like so many Western central banks, the RBA felt they had no choice but to go straight to the zero lower bound uh, to guide that uh, the RBA's cash rate would stay very low for a long time. But of course, the downside of that, so to speak, is that if you're one of the last Western central banks to come to the asset purchase party at a time when bonds are on the roof, then, you know, if you're promising to cap three-year Australian government bonds at 10 basis points, uh, which is pretty ambitious, you're going to be buying an awful lot of bonds at a very high price. And look, we know that central banks and negative equity may or may not matter, but by buying so many bonds, three-year Australian government bonds, at a, at a staggering price, you know, 10 basis points, you were guaranteeing at some point future losses, or at least market-to-market losses for the Reserve Bank of Australia, which in years to come may require some kind of recapitalisation. I don't know. But the more broader point is that the RBA's yield curve control was simply overcome by events. It was overcome by events when it became clear to nearly everyone with a pulse that By the fourth quarter of 2021, um, inflation was non-transitory. And the Fed pivoted, everyone else is trying to catch up. And then if you're the central bank of a small open economy, um, what are you going to do? Are you going to be the bid for the planet? No. If the market decides that things are heading in a different direction, then yield control is no longer a thing. And the the, the thing I still find surprising, Grant, about the RBAs abandoning yield curve control, there was no statement and no press conference. Right. I I found that extraordinary. And that's before we get into the related, remarkably precise commitment that that they did not view the policy rates were going to be rising before 2024. And unsurprisingly, that probably enticed a whole bunch of leveraged investors in Australian property that should have known better. And once Phil Lowe and his colleagues realised that we've got an inflation problem too, they're now scrambling to catch up. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I suspect we'll come to that in a second, but, you know, this is the inverse of whatever it takes.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a yeah. great point. It's a that's, great point. A, that's a great way to think about it and say it. That's pretty
2: clever, mate. No, I've been, I've been working on it all day, Bill. <laughs> well, it shows. <laughs> but let's let's, if I may, let's think about that. It is almost a decade since whatever it takes. It was the 26th of July, 2012, where Draghi sort of stum- started mumbling this speech about bumblebees, and everyone's like, "What's he had for breakfast?" And then he ends, and then he ends up by saying, "Whatever it takes." And it was one of the most extraordinary ad libbed central bank elect. Uh, interventions of all time because then he had to convince his colleagues of what he'd done but that's Draghi 101 and I was joking with a few clients this week that over the last decade the European Central Bank's gone from whatever it takes to just whatever
1: <laughs> I know you wrote that I thought it's hysterical well, well speaking of speaking of European Central Banks and whatever yeah. we're kind yeah. of getting around the globe quickly but it seems yeah. like Madame Lagarde has got herself in a sticky spot and I uh, in that I think they know they have to at least pretend to care about inflation, but now they've got spreads blowing out. So how are they going to have their cake and eat it too with this one?
2: Well, I mean, I don't know if you saw this weekend that Madame Lagarde was received an honorary doctorate from the London school of economics. (laughs) And and as as one of my, one of my clients said, did you see that? And I said, yes, she got it for services to realize volatility. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and with a with a special mention for services to central bank miscommunication. But um but uh, you know it's it's just sad, you know. But look it's sad, but it's what you get. Are you okay? Do you want we want to time out there, brother? <laughs> but um But look, it's it's a pretty um look, I have to say they're bluffing. Right? They're bluffing. Think about what they're trying to say. Oh, as ever, fragmentation is a no-no. Okay, we get it. How dare markets reprice the end of your precious economic and monetary union? Now, we get that. And there's 250,000 bureaucrats in Brussels who will be working night and day to assure it doesn't end, okay? But then why is there this so-called fragmentation premium creeping into the periphery, well, it's because you've promised to tighten policy. So it's not that markets are saying, oh, gosh, you know, we've got heightened concerns about Italy or Spain or all these other places. It's like markets are saying, well, if you people are not going to be the buyer of first resort in perpetuity, who is? So it's no surprise that if you're a central bank that has held rates down and bought assets, not just for three years, but for the best part of a decade, And you say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Then markets are going to test your metal, And that's exactly what happens. So the perversity of this mysterious fragmentation tool is that you're causing it. And now they're sort of saying, well, they are saying we're going to tighten policy, which let's not forget is still minus 50 basis points. Yeah. I mean, what are you doing? And you've got a weak currency, which means imported energy costs are going to be higher, which creates some kind of feedback loop of realized inflation. But now you've got this really sneaky fragmentation tool. So we know, we know at some point, if boxed into a corner, the European system of central banks, to use the correct name of the European uh, central banking system, they're going to be a buyer at some point, but we don't know where. But boy, oh boy, operationalizing this when you've got high inflation, uh, when you've got high energy prices, how to understand what you buy and where, this is really complicated. This is not like Draghi, Mm. whatever it takes, uh, uh, OMT, LSAP. It's very different and actually really difficult. And they're trying to bluff their way for a month or two or more until they can figure out how to make this happen. But I'm just flagging that we all know what the intention is, but the irony is that they're causing this so-called fragmentation risk. And to be clear, I don't think anyone truly believes today in European fragmentation or fragmentation of economic and monetary union. In line with so many other markets around the world, long-term yields are higher, credit spreads are wider, because the buyer of first resort is stepping back. We have higher realised volatility, higher inflation, higher policy uncertainty, but I very much doubt that anyone who's been tempted to uh, sell a few BTPs or Bonos in Spain or even oats in France, and let's let's not forget the golden rule that France too is a current account deficit country yep. and has a Mediterranean coastline, so we could say it's a periphery country, but just not the Macron. Um but, you know, there's, there's a lot of unfinished business here, and I'm watching it with interest, but having had drilled into them that the ECB, for all Madame Lagarde's, frankly, ineptitude, if necessary, they will be the bid. But then thinking longer term, all right, you're tightening policy in the front end and crossing your fingers, but committing to open-ended asset purchases at some price to hold the thing together. What does that mean for the euro as a store of value? Yeah, right, right. What, what does it mean long term? I mean, why am I? What, what are you doing? And you're a million miles from uh, from uh, realizing or achieving a robust consensual plan to wean yourself off Russian energy and move forward. I mean, it's embarrassing. It's truly embarrassing. Apart from that, it's all good.
0: Yeah, yeah, right, James. What, what I find so interesting about all this is. This idea of yield curve control, because what they're doing now, they are setting up a situation where yield curve control is what they're going to be forced into doing at exactly the same time that it's it's already been a bust in Australia. It's coming under massive pressure in Japan. But unless you can peg that curve somewhere, and as you, as you sort of quite rightly point out, we know who the buyer of only resort is going to be at some point. This is a really tricky set of facts to try and come to a solution on because everything you do pushes you down a road you don't want to go.
1: It seems like the only way they could actually sterilize this would be if they were to buy bonds that are spreading out and be willing to sell, you know, boons, short dated boons or somehow they, they got to sell something to buy something if they're going to keep it monetary neutral. I can't imagine how they get that done, though.
2: I, I think it's probably the least of their concerns is sterilization, although it did take note when the ECB released both a statement and a brief leak to Bloomberg, as usual, late last week, it was like, oh, the plan is to sell something to buy something else. Now, your first instinct is, oh, good luck selling bonds." If, if you're the buyer of first resort and you're suddenly turning around and you own 80% of the free float, or at least the public sector owns 80% plus of the free float of bonds, and you're trying to turn around and hit a bid, well, guess what? You're probably going to hit an air pocket. But I'm also keeping an open... yeah. And also keeping an open mind about it because when they say sell, I also think issue. Now I'm not talking about joint and several liability. I'm not talking about mutualized mutualization of European sovereign debt. But I wonder if part of the tentative thinking is, oh, we have this new post-COVID borrowing authority via the European Commission, and it's zero risk weighted and it's risk-free and it is European sovereign paper. Mm. Oh, maybe we can wrap it in a bit of green and sustainable stuff. You see where this is going? Yeah. Yeah. So we potentially, we issue tremendous amount of European commission paper or European union paper to be euphemistic. And then we deploy the proceeds to get the Draghi man to buy back his own debt or something like that. That, that wouldn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. And it, it, one, some people would call that mutually assured destruction. So we're going to increase the b- borrowing at the central level to avoid fragmentation risk. But then the counter-argument is, do you want to pick a fight with another 100 billion euros of firepower issued by the European Commission and then downstream to various sovereigns to do their thing? I don't know, but I, it wouldn't surprise me if that comes up at some point. Yeah.
0: But, but isn't that the problem, that now we've reached the point where they're going to do things they're forced into doing? They're not forcing to do them because they want one outcome, which is stabilisation. They're being forced into doing things to keep everything together, to keep currencies somewhat stable, to keep interest rates where they need them, to keep the bond markets from freaking out, to keep Europe together. It's not just we need to lower borrowing costs so that the periphery hangs in there. It's everything.
2: Yes, that's right. But I just counter by saying I think all of us in markets have understood that an unwritten part of the ECB's monetary framework, out of necessity over the last decade, has been avoiding fragmentation. And, and coming out of this, I think it could be hardwired into the ECB's mandate, obviously with some objections from Germany. But boy, oh boy, that puts you in an impossible situation. Because yeah. what happens if inflation persists, there's more yield pressure, there's more pressure on credit spreads, and you've got high inflation, and you're intervening every day to buy peripheral paper. I mean, that's just a car crash, right? Um, we're not there yet, and they may just get lucky, but you, you're making a good point about how do you keep all these moving, how do you hold all of these moving parts together? And, you know, is it a bit like the Bank of Japan? Well, if you're going to effectively be doing yield curve control and periphery if you're under pressure, um, something's got to give. And potentially at some point that's the euro, but time will tell. We don't know.
1: We look at all of the gymnastics that the ECB's having to do. And of course, we can talk about Japan and even the Fed to some degree and the Swiss. Now. I'm a little bit surprised that more people don't question the premise of money printing because we're here in this mess because of the money printing, the misallocation of capital and the can kicking that goes along with it. And I like to use money printing as a failed policy. And if you cannot stop it, Then by definition, it's an addiction. You know, the central banks are addicted to free, easy money, and so are lots of people. If you have to break an addiction, it gets very complicated and the addict doesn't want to. And when we talk about these, you know, gymnastics that the ECB would have to go through, it just seems it seems so clear to me. And yet I don't see any real questioning of the central banks themselves. Maybe it's too early in the process, but I just keep wondering, when are we going to see some of that or or will we? I think.
2: In the case of the ECB, it's an especially difficult and pernicious situation because they're trying to hold together a currency union. That's yeah. their job. And, and you know, you, you and I, Bill, have had this chat a few times over the past decade and a plus. I, I think of, you know, I think of economic and monetary union as a hedge fund that's prime broked by the ECB, right? <laughs> it is. It is. And, you know, the gates are up, right? The gates are shut. You, know, you, you, you Oh, that's you, a good you, analogy. You but it has been for a long time out of necessity. And it's it, it, look, it's um oh that'll be Lagarde now, better take it. Um <laughs> But the but is he wearing trousers?
0: Let's hope so. <laughs> Let's hope so, because if he isn't, we need to shut the video down right now.
2: Let's keep recording. <laughs> Bill Fleckenstein, the half dressed man. Oh my uh, gosh. Right? Um but but um but just on that you know no other central bank is also responsible for a currency union per se no no okay and and more to the point a currency union still lacking political union okay now they might yet get there in the next crisis we know that for gosh twenty plus no I'll say twenty five years that economic and monetary union has advanced one crisis at a time. And I don't doubt for a second that there are many very clever uh, uh, bureaucrats in Brussels thinking, oh, geez, you know, here's another opportunity um, to, to, to get ever closer to the final project by using another bond or credit crisis to, you know, expand our footprint. So we won't know. But I'll just say that I think, again, the ECB situation is a lot trickier. Uh, than many of their peers, which is not to say that any of these other central banks are facing an easy time. Um, But we should perhaps talk about uh, incentives that these central banks are facing and how different this now is, obviously, to the past decade. Okay, great. um, (laughs) I I wasn't... When you got up, I thought, oh, shit, I hope he's wearing pants. (laughs) 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 Sorry. Anyway...
1: (laughs) It's like Mark Haynes used to always wear sweats on the, scene, uh, on the bubble vision set. You know, I'd go, when I used to go on, on back in the 90s and I'd go back to New York and I'd stick next to him, he always, had, he always had sweatpants on. You know, I just suit jacket and shirt and tie and sweatpants.
2: Anyway. Now, let's think about the environment we're in, which is uh, so different, obviously, to the last decade. And central banks, unfortunately, but out of necessity, became the only game in town and they were terrified by the thought of a liquidation event such as the early 1930s and a low-inflation, disinflationary world. So they had to act. They'd cut traditional policy rates to zero. They had to act to give guidance. They had to expand their balance sheets. They had to do QE because they needed to underpin inflation, underpin consumption, and move away from the risk of a liquidation event, which arguably they did far too uh, successfully, and convince people that there was always and everywhere something called a Fed put. Okay, that was then. And there was this concept called risk management, which came up in a lot of speeches. And risk management in practical terms means, and frankly, it's something that you know, started way back with Greenspan, if in doubt, are on the side of dovishness. That's, that's the practical outcome. Risk management, err on the side of dovishness because we've got a disinflationary world, we've got all these trends, software, well, whatever. Okay, we have flipped that 180 degrees. Of course we have. Central banks uh, are realising that they overstayed their welcome. They are trying to correct their mistakes. And if in the past decade or so, central banks operated to ensure that financial conditions were always and everywhere pretty loose to ensure that inflation didn't fall too much and that consumption remained pretty steady. We've flipped that on its head because realized inflation has turned out to be far more persistent. And here's the thing, risk management by central banks now means if in doubt, hike too far, right? If in doubt, overdo it with hikes. Now, that's going to have some consequences because there is no history of a Fed hiking cycle and a soft dish landing. And you notice the Fed's using soft dish landing, which sounds better than hard stop, right? <laughs> but but the, the point here is that the incentives for central banks have changed. And I'm not sure financial markets realized how punishing this period is going to be. Now, obviously a lot of things have adjusted. We know that. A lot of things have come down. A lot of things that deserve to get hit have been hit. A lot of things that we would have imagined to get hit have been hit because we have higher realized inflation, higher realized interest rate volatility, and higher policy uncertainty. But the point is this. The Fed's just getting started, and none of these people are going to give up on four decades of hard-won inflation credibility, believe it or not. They're not going to give up. Now, how they pull this off, I don't know. But just reflect on the past week. I would, I mean, unprecedented is an abused term in finance. right? But there, were, there was quite a lot happening last week that was most unusual. Now, we had all these central bank meetings in the calendar. So we knew they were coming up. We knew that various central banks would be hiking or more hawkish. We knew that. But for the Fed to blink after that, Friday inflation data two weeks ago uh, and then coinciding with a bit of a tick up in inflation expectations. And then go, oh my gosh, we've got a leak that we want to do 75. And everyone's like, are you serious? Now, why not just do 75 and, 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 and get in front of it again? Because this is part of the problem. this endless spoon feeding. Oh, I can't surprise people. Well, hang on a minute. You're telling us that you want to, get after inflation belatedly. Oh, but you don't want markets to reprice too abruptly. Look, the takeaway is this. Unless we see a sustained tightening of financial conditions and or something that feels like a nasty little recession, these guys are not going to make any progress in coming to grips with inflation, let alone re-anchoring inflation expectations. And I think they know that. And it's interesting to see the language that the key Fed officials are using. Financial conditions are tightening, not have tightened, although they have. Financial conditions continue to tighten. In other words, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And they're paying the price, in a sense, of the past decade where markets learned that central banks would never tolerate the tightening of financial conditions. Well, again, that's completely flipped. You need Tighter financial conditions, much tighter financial conditions than we see even now to have any impact on this. And, you know, I, I wasn't sure if we were going to go 75 or not. I thought we we're going to get 50 50 and then at least 25 from September onwards, and they're just going to keep hiking. Okay, but then to throw 75 on the table and maybe another 75 depending on the next inflation print. Uh, at a time when people are trying to say, oh, the Fed's wrong, they're going to cause a recession. You know, I think the Fed's going to have to do a lot more to cause a recession here, and they're going to try. And we need to be very open-minded about this because, yeah, maybe there are some pockets of value appearing. Maybe. But broadly speaking, we are nowhere near still the tightening of financial conditions required to get to grips with this inflation beast. And to see last week, Fed League 75, Go 75 says, and his press conference was all over the shop. He's like, yeah, this, that, and the other, I don't know. Well, he can't give guidance anymore.
1: No, but he did make a couple of, I think, I don't remember the exact words. I think he said he thought the economy was still strong. And now maybe he has to say that. You know, I can never tell what they're saying. Are they saying it just to say it? Do they really not understand? Does he really think the economy is strong? Or is he just saying that?
2: He does? Yes, he does. And their data continues to suggest against all expectations that this economy continues to charge along. Now, of course, there are some emerging pockets of weakness. Of course there are. Lower-income households are struggling with high prices, which is an enormous political problem for Biden. We know that. Gasoline prices and especially diesel prices are high and rising. But the consumer data in aggregate, I'm amazed how resilient it continues to be and people are very focused on consumer surveys and sentiment okay they've turned they've turned hard but what are they actually doing on their credit cards right it's remarkable that you're seeing a slowdown in some of these uh consumer trends and and, uh, credit card revolvers and stuff like that but they're still at very high levels and then the other thing the flip side of this is that aggregate Uh, consumer revolving credit in the United States as a percentage of aggregate personal compensation is as low as it's been in 25, 30 years. The point being that extraordinarily to all of us in markets, the US consumer still has capacity to re-leverage. Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but then you you cross-check with the data from the JP Morgan's, the Bank of America's, and again, it's clear the lower income households are suffering. But in aggregate, I mean, it's remarkable. And then the final point I make is that as much as people are focused on the travails of uh, the Walmarts, the Targets, and others who have a bit of an inventory problem, you look at the actual company data, and admittedly it tends to be at the high end, they're seeing no slowdown at all. No slowdown at all. It's extraordinary because you'd think that people would be sacrificing in aggregate, uh, dialing back their consumption, knuckling down, understanding that there's an inflation fight on, that money's going to get more expensive, financial conditions are going to tighten, you know. In other words, the wealth effect goes into reverse. And I find it remarkable that we've not started to slow down more already. It's very strange. It's very strange indeed. So I hear you and I hear many others when they say, you know, is the Fed effectively on something? I mean, what are they making out? Well, of course, no central bank anywhere will forecast a recession. They just won't. They just won't. But if you wanted to be a little bit facetious, but only a little bit facetious, the number one indicator of a US recession is when the Fed starts cutting rates. Yes. Seriously. that That's when it's locked in. It's like, here we go. Right? And look, I, I, I sympathise a little bit with the Fed's struggle because they've got an inflation problem. They've got a labour market that's too tight and yet miraculously, consumption continues to hold in so far. But if the Fed's going to get to at least 3% Fed funds by the end of this year, which I think is probably right, then that's the most abrupt hiking cycle in 40 years. And I doubt many algorithms have parametized that.
0: Let me just ask you a couple of things while, while they're still in my mind as you go through that, because it's it's there's so much in there to talk about. And a couple of questions for you that I, I don't have the answer to, just trying to think through what you just said, because it is interesting about this, particularly about this strong economy. You know, there's a chance that households are still spending on credit, but they've switched their patterns to things they have to buy rather than things they want to buy. It's it's a lot more need-based rather than discretionary. And if you look at housing data, it suggests that these rising mortgage rates, you know, we're at 6% now from two and a half a few months ago, has anecdotally, plus some of the data stopped the housing market dead in its tracks, which is interesting. And I'm just like you, I'm trying to understand how this plays out, because the pervading belief in the market is still, the Fed will pivot, they're going to see some weak data, they'll do what they've done every time for the last 40 years, and they'll pivot, they'll go back to QE, they'll start cutting rates again. So if you can just hold um, you know, like Michael Caine and Zulu till you see the whites of their eyes, the Fed will blink and they'll reverse course quickly. And at that point, all assets go up again. Now, I'm very much in your camp that I don't think people believe how serious they are about taming this, particularly in the US in an election year. And so I, I'm, I'm jugged in all these things and I, I still believe in the inflationary narrative right now. But I'm bewildered as to why the market doesn't, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I I hear a lot of that and I'm like, look, take a step back and let's think what we would do if we were the Fed right now. What would we be doing? And it's not just, oh, you know, a, a couple of – I know you're not saying this, but the Fed, unsurprisingly, does not sit around the table swapping anecdotes. That's not what the Fed does. They have all sorts of data, extraordinary data, and they're considering – what the data is telling them at any given time, and let's not overlook that first fundamental point. They need much tighter financial conditions. On the narrow topic of mortgage market and housing, Monetary Policy 101 is that when you want to loosen financial conditions or loosen policy, you do it by the household wealth effect, uh, portfolios, balance sheet, get financial conditions loose, cost of mortgages comes down, Households can refinance, take the money out, do what they like. Well, the flip side of that is that when you have a pretty serious inflation problem, such as they do today, you want mortgage rates up a lot because you want to crimp household consumption and you want to crimp demand and hope that you can get on a better trajectory with inflation because as much as this is obviously a supply-side problem, I'm afraid the only way we have to address it now is by cracking demand on the head and that's extremely difficult to calibrate but on the housing topic we've had 30 year fixed rate mortgages in the united states go from three percent to six and a bit um, year to date now that is extraordinary and if the three of us have been sitting down in January and say you know what if 30 fixed is going from three to six and a half or something what would be the impact well households have been knuckling down Uh, There'd be no housing equity withdrawals or anything like that. People would, spending would be really be hit hard. Look out, it's all going to roll because consumption is everything. It's extraordinary to me that it's only now that you're starting to see some cracks emerge in the US housing market with, you'd imagine, inevitable read throughs to parts and pockets of household consumption and aggregate demand in the United States. And I'd say again, as intended. But The flip side, there's two quibbles I have with this about um, rising mortgage costs. The first thing is one of the many consequences of 2008 is that the United States built millions fewer homes than necessary just to keep up with demand. So there are still people out there saying, you know what? Oh, good. There's a few home builders that are putting discounts out there. I know mortgage rates have gone up, but I've been waiting for this moment. My wages have been going up in nominal terms. Um, I think I'll have a go. So there's there's extraordinary mismatch between construction completions and everything else. Again, perhaps an overlooked consequence of overweight. So that's the first point. And the second point, I, I get two questions every week. When's the recession start? Or when does the Fed pivot? Um, look, look, let's take a step back, right? And and as you both know, as, as well-read men, you know, thinking fast and slow, Kahneman's book and also Philip Teklock, super forecasting. When you're trying to understand a very complicated world, or at least be less strong than others, it it's often helps to step back and take the outside view. And I've been reminding my clients that, look, there's plenty of risks. There's no good history of the Fed bringing in a very geared, very speculative US economy in for a soft landing. So you don't want to actually bet on that. You actually want to think at some point it could get pretty bumpy. But on the other hand, There's never been a U.S. recession with negative real policy rates. Now, that could be the wrong framework because we have a much more financialized economy than we did in the 70s. But it's actually worth thinking about. We've never had a U.S. recession with negative real policy rates. So if we imagine with a bit of luck that headline inflation in the United States at the end of 2022 is back down to five, which frankly would be a heck of an achievement and the Fed funds rate is three, then unsurprisingly, we're talking about a negative real Fed funds rate of 200. And this is the other point. You will never, ever address an inflation problem with peak negative real policy rates. It is not possible. So not only does the, is the Fed, as they're telling us, accelerating back towards neutral, they will have to get restrictive at some point if they are serious about arresting this inflation problem. Now, of course, we've not outlawed recessions. There will be more recessions. But the other thing that that I wonder about is that people look at the first quarter and they say, oh, negative real GDP. Here we go. And they're like, oh, here's the Atlanta Fed now forecast, another soft quarter. I'm like, okay, real GDP. And they're like, yes. I'm like, yes, real GDP. What's happening in nominal GDP? And I think that's worth reflecting on as well. As a result of all this overstimulation, through the fourth quarter of last year, U.S. nominal GDP was rising at a preposterous 14 point, I'm going to say 14.3%, right? Now, that is just ridiculous. First quarter of this year, nominal GDP in the United States slowed to 6.3, and this quarter, it might be 7-ish. That is still really strong. And to go back to your earlier point, what does the Fed see that other people may not? And I think part of what the Fed sees is their own history of creating recessions. You know, you need to get restrictive. And also, almost remarkably, nominal GDP continues to be remarkably strong. And where I come out is I, I too, will be on recession watch. There's a lot of things that can go wrong over the next six months But the Fed is on a mission. They are not giving us any guidance other than they need to be necessarily hawkish. They will need to see a series of months where the rate of change of inflation comes down. But i got to tell you, they're going to have to do a lot to arrest this. They're going to have to do a lot. And I'm not sure markets are going to like it. And pardon the pun. Financial markets are going to be collateral damage, literally, as the Fed Goes on its inflation fighting mission. So I don't know what peak Fed funds is. I mean, the market now is roughly four, four and a bit percent. If we look at Fed funds, futures, and OIS, let's say March next year is around 4%. Golly gosh, that would be a phenomenal outcome if you can arrest this problem by only getting to 4%. I think the Fed would be absolutely stoked. Uh, but my suspicion is they might have to fight a bit harder. I don't know. Uh, but we need to understand that these people are determined. Uh, they might very well be wrong. But my thinking is um, my thinking is that it's probably a bit soon to be too wound up about recession risk. And again, I would say the leading indicator of recession risk is actually, ironically, if the Fed actually starts cutting. And I'm, I think we're a fair way from there.
1: I'll help you with that argument a bit. I think in terms of what happens to housing, I don't see this discussed much. Maybe it's because you have to have as much gray hair as I do, and maybe Grant does. But I can remember clearly in the early 80s when mortgage rates were, you know, they got up to mid-teens. I think they might even get to 16. I can't recall exactly. But people were still buying houses because for two reasons. Number one, They'd seen what had happened to housing and they were afraid it would happen again at some point and they wanted to have one. And number two, you get these free calls or puts, however you want to look at with the mortgage, right? You can always like if they drop, you can just refire way back down. So that helps buttress your argument that perhaps we could see a scramble for housing, even with rates going up, because the, if the consumer has the wherewithal, I'm just I'm taking your argument and just giving you something to go with it.
2: Yeah, because this nominal income growth is pretty high. You know, for the first time in, in, in many decades, no, I won't say many decades, I'll say the first time in a long time, US workers and workers everywhere have bargaining power. And the market clearing price of labour is higher because people are trying and struggling to fill jobs. I mean, it's everywhere. Every shop here in Wimbledon is like help wanted. I'm sure you've seen it everywhere in the United States. There's, there's your employment labour market situation right there in front of you. In fact, as a as a little cross check for people just walking down the street and saying, "Well, how's the economy really doing?" I've got all these people saying it's going to hell. Okay, it's got some challenges, but you know, if those help wanted signs start disappearing from your local shop windows, there's your tell. There's there's your tell, right? And and just to be open open minded and, and eyes wide open about that. But you're right because, when it comes to grant to mortgage costs, I. I know there's a few people out there in the same vein talking about, oh, corporate bond deals have gone up a lot. Well, of course they've gone up a lot because long term bond deals have gone up. Duration's been hit and people should be actually keeping an eye on credit spreads. But people are also out there excited about charts of US mortgage rates. Well, of course they've gone up a lot. But I wonder if it's more useful to look at mortgage rates uh, uh, against household disposable income or household. Compensation or stuff like that, um, because maybe—and I don't know. This is a very tenuous theory. Maybe to Bill's point, that such is the demand, the unsatiated demand for homes and new homes in particular, that perhaps people might feel more comfortable uh, even borrowing at these higher rates. And 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 you know, if, if rates come down again, they can refinance. So, you know, I, I to to me, of course, there'll be a recession, uh, and I could be as ever horribly wrong, but my bias is that the recession is more of a 2023 issue than than 2022, Uh, but we shall see. But I wanted, I I forgot, I'm sorry, to just highlight a point uh, about the past week. Of course, all these central banks talk to each other, and when you're on the cusp of the most vigorous hiking cycle in 40 plus years, there's safety in numbers. But to see the Fed say, oh, it's 75, and then, look, we'll probably need to do more. Maybe it's 50, maybe it's 75, this, that, and the other. That's that's one thing. Bank of England, bless them, does 25, and it's another word salad. And, you know, oh, you know, we don't want to hike. And we forecast higher inflation at the end of 22. It's actually going to be 11%, but we don't want to hike. We don't want to hike more. It's like, guys, what are you doing? ECB we've talked about a bit, Uh, Reserve Bank of Australia. On Australian TV, yeah. basically announcing a, a, a that, that was a remarkable moment for Phil Lowe. It really was. an out of meeting, oh, sorry, you know what we said a month ago? We were wrong. It's now 7% and here we go. What? And then most of all, perhaps the Swiss National Bank, uh, actually, we're going to go 50 and, yeah, you know, we know we might have to suffer a strong currency, but it's the right thing. And say, like, oh, my gosh. And it was quite the week. And if we think about some fairly recent history, you'll recall in early 2016, there was all this utter nonsense about a so-called Shanghai Accord. And you will remember in early 2016, the Fed was intubating, we're going to do four hikes in 16. And then there was a G7 or G20 meeting in Shanghai and suddenly everything changed. No one wanted to hike this, that, the other. And it was alleged that there was some kind of share a uh, central bank agreement that know would wait and watch because things are a bit difficult. Well, it's the inverse of that. It's not an agreement. It's not a Shanghai thing. It's nothing like that. But I think central banks are going to be operating together to tighten policy in a way that none of us have seen. And that's different. And it's not just one central bank. It's pretty much all of them with the final holdout of the Bank of Japan and again, the psychology of this, they're not prepared to sacrifice, and we can we can certainly jest about it, they're not prepared to sacrifice what they believe to be four decades of inflation credibility. And financial markets, again, are the pawns in the game. Financial markets were never, ever part of the objective function of central banks. It's just that out of necessity, because monetary policy was the only game in town, central banks used financial markets uh, to underpin, or ensure that financial conditions were loose, to underpin inflation expectations, and uh, to underpin consumption, lest we have a liquidation event. So we were effectively a tool for the central banks, and we all benefit from that massively. And this is payback. This is payback for all the supernormal profits that we all enjoyed in the privileged cocoon of financial markets. Between 2009 and late last year, and I struggled to imagine that the corrections (plural) that we're seeing on our screens are complete. It's interesting, though, Grant and, and Bill, to see the psychology of markets. Like, look at the past month. Raphael Bostic from the Atlanta Fed, you know, goes a bit rogue. He says, oh, I think we should pause in December, uh, uh, September," and he got. I think he's still. Uh, locked in the basement of the Fed in Washington. But, but you, you saw the way the market responded is interesting insight into the psychology of markets. Markets really want to believe that the Fed and other central banks are going to mess this up, resume normal service, yes, they yeah. screw it up, everything falls apart. And, and the minute Grant and Bostick said, oh, I think we're going to make, you saw all these growth stocks dig in or at least not make a U-low, all these things that have been belted just started to tick up a bit and outperform. And we understand why. And duration sort of went bid for a little bit up until, you know, last week or the early last week. And everyone's like, oh, here we go. Here comes the pivot. And then within a week and a bit, and none of this happens by accident, you know, Lyle Broner's ringing up CNBC saying, I need to talk. And that's unscheduled. And she's like, I need to talk. And she reads from a script and says, blah, blah, blah. Very unlikely to pause. Thanks for coming, Raphael. Don't do that again. Right? And we know who's in charge now. Of course it's in charge. It's Brainard and Powell. And um, they're going to fight this hard. They're putting us all on notice. And they're basically saying, look, we'll do, and I'm going to go back to an earlier phrase, this is whatever it takes to fight inflation. Now, they're getting close to saying that, but they dare not because they're mindful of what whatever it takes means to the psychology of markets. So when spreads are wide and EMU is at risk of blowing apart, Draghi comes up with whatever it takes. And what the Fed, and even Philip Lowe at the RBA used this, whatever is necessary. Well, that's as close as you'll Mm -hmm. get to the inverse of whatever it takes, and we should believe them. They will do whatever is necessary to come back to get to grips with this inflation situation. And it's going to be very tricky. It's going to be very difficult. But we haven't seen something quite like this. I won't say coordinated because I don't think it's coordinated, but I don't think we've seen anything synchronized like this in monetary policy. Obviously, April 2020, but more interestingly, perhaps fourth quarter in 2008, right? And, and I think we need to get out of these guys' way. It's going to be tricky. Um, when I run through this scenario with people, I say, oh, you're so bearish. It's like, well, that may well be the case. But it's different. It's a different world. And I can see at some point where central banks have a hard choice between growth and inflation. I can see that. I agree with people who say, if it does come to that very stark choice, between brutal recession and inflation, I do imagine that the central banks will, at that hypothetical point, say, you know what? Well, inflation is coming down; it's still high, but we forecast it to come down between now and 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 2042. You know, there's all <laughs> sorts of way. There's all sorts of ways you can sugarcoat it, but look, less this be construed. And I know you're not saying this, but lest this be construed as some kind of pile on on central banks. It isn't. It isn't. And, and we mustn't, having all benefited so massively for central bank largesse for 12 years, the, the thing we need to avoid doing, and I know you two have been careful not to, we can't now turn around and blame central banks for high realised volatility in financial markets and all this kind of stuff. They're doing what they need to do. And it's on us to reposition our portfolios, as we have been, to reflect this new reality to reflect this transition, and as has been the case for some time now, if we we're going to navigate this transition with our portfolios and successfully navigate, which means being less wrong than others and ideally outperforming, we will need to own different things.
0: Yeah, yeah, such a great point, James. Uh, let, let me just ask you because I, I always imagined—I have to say—and what you when you talk about this kind of synchronized policy, that that's really interesting to me because I always imagined that when policy reversed it would very much be an every-man-for-himself situation because everyone's inflation fight is different and everyone's domestic policy needs are different. So this really interesting to me, and and you're right, we have seen like a synchronised move, but I wonder if there's a point where that becomes unhinged when some inflation moderates more than others and some gets more out of whack. Do you see that as a potential possibility? And if so, what does that mean for risk assets?
2: I think... I think you might be asking me what might go right in terms of getting inflation down. Yes, exactly right. And and it's so important to never lose sight of that because, look, we know what all the problems are. Who, Who of us in markets could not understand that we have a heck of a lot of problems, most of which are still about the supply side and that the central banks are therefore compelled to use a very blunt instrument to slow demand because the supply response just isn't there. So there's, you know, things will go wrong. Some countries will make mistakes. And you're right, realized inflation in one country is quite a bit above realized inflation in others, or to be accurate, in two jurisdictions. The United States and Europe Europe, appear to have a more pernicious problem than other parts of the world. So you've got to be on the lookout for that. But to be very clear, any decision by a central bank to slow down or cease rate hikes will be data-driven, and they have no great ability right now to predict when or what that may be. But at some point, it may be a fudge where they can convince themselves that, oh, look, month-on-month core inflation in any country is not 1 or 0.9 or 0.3, but maybe it's coming back to 0.2, 0.3. So the year-on-year numbers are still high, month-on-month's coming down, happy days. So we're making progress we, and we give some guidance that, oh, we're, we're going to pause, right? Um, we're not there yet, but that's effectively what we need to cope up, keep an open mind about. But if I was to imagine one thing that might help, it's lower oil prices. Now, who amongst us does not know that we have a global energy supply problem? We all know that, right? Right? And we all know it's difficult to fix, particularly in the context of the most harebrained energy policy in the United States and elsewhere. Absolutely mad. So the, the essence of energy policy in the United States is this. We hate you, but not for the next five years. <laughs> we hate you. We will – can you please build, pump, dig, whatever? Um, oh, by the way, if you do, we'll hit you with a windfall tax – And then after prices have adjusted, we will take you behind the shed and beat you with a big stick because you are no longer required Thanks for coming. And shockingly, Grant, oil and gas companies are like, nah, (laughs) because we have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders, which they do as a board. So we know that there's a bit of a dilemma because there has to be a trade-off at some point between all this woke ESG climate stuff and the reality of fully powering your economy, because you can't have much of economy without reliable energy supplies and backup as the West is discovering right now. But we all know that, right? Whether it be your marvellous, marvellous friend, uh, the green chicken, who has, I'll just say, um, uh, without revealing anyone, I'll just say, He and his colleagues have real, real industrial expertise and they're providing an enormous community service to try and educate people and help them think. So we know what the issues are. So why has there been an acceleration of insider sales at all these US oil and gas companies? So I think I should disclose and I think listeners know by now I've been a very strong advocate of oil and gas companies since the second quarter of 2020, simply because I think we're going to need them and that they're going to be churning out a lot of cash to shareholders. And in a more inflationary world, cash flow is king, just ask any venture capitalist today. <laughs> cash, cash, flow, cash flow is actually quite important. Useful. So I've been useful yeah, shockingly so, and quite quaint. But look, and, um, and I've been trying to recommend various businesses to clients, as, as you both know, saying, look, stick with it, stick with it, stick with it. It's very hard for every allocator to get involved in oil and gas, although many more, although a growing number are trying to change prospectuses and mandates mm-hmm. because it's like, look, we, we need these things. But then you start to say, hang on, what's the backdrop? So we all know what the energy supply problem is. Oil and gas insider sales have picked up a lot. And then I'm very fortunate to work with some of the world's largest uh, energy trading businesses and I'm able to triangulate my own limited expertise or knowledge with what's happening on the ground. And there's no argument with the long-term issues which are not going to be resolved by Fed hikes or anything else. But near-term, it is inconsistent in the context of discussion we've had it is inconsistent to believe that the Fed's going to do whatever it takes and that the best-performing sector of the market will not get chinned a bit because people will try to take profit wherever they find it. So I can sit here and say, oh, well, la da oil and gas stocks, great, the valuations are improving even though the share price has gone up. Well, it's important to consider the backdrop. And we saw the first hints of that late last week. Oil got a bit of a dinging, and oil and gas stocks got a spectacular chinning as well. I'm like, okay, people are trying to take profit where they can find it. That's interesting. But then you also cross-check. We all know the Russian situation. We all know that China's offline, which, by the way, in the context of global commodity shortages, it's a damn good thing that uh, yeah. Xi Jinping has basically taken his economy offline. Can you imagine? But then you also look at data, and you look at the amount of oil on the water right now, Okay. Oil on the water. It's like, gee whiz, you look at the seasonals and it's quite high, you know, even allowing for 2020, which is the outlier, but compared to the past five years, the amount of oil on the water at this time of year is quite high. Now, this is not to deny gasoline tightness in the United States. It's not to deny the huge gasoline, uh, diesel problems in the northeast life state. That's known. Nice. It's like, hang on a second. Maybe you need to keep an open mind here, right? Maybe you need to keep an open mind. So what am I saying? You know, as muddle-headed as so much of the Western policy response has been to energy prices, I just observed that oil took a chinning last week. Doesn't matter why, doesn't matter who, and I just observed that oil and gas stocks have had a very severe correction from recent highs, and the insider selling has picked up. And that behoves anyone who believes in the oil and gas story to keep an open mind. And who knows, one of the things that could go right here, now to be clear, not if you're a long-term believer in oil and gas stocks, at least in the short term, but one of the things that could go right here, almost miraculously, is that not only does the oil price stop going up, but it comes down a bit. It comes down a bit, and I don't know what a bit is, but I'm watching it closely because a, a lower oil prices or somewhat lower energy prices would really, really help central banks. Yeah. And I'd have to say, as much as it's not in their control, it's what they want.
1: Well, you might uh, be able to get some weakness in the oil market, as you, know, as you say. And from a speculative standpoint, I'm sure a lot of people are hiding out there and are getting flushed. I'm not talking about the stocks. I'm thinking more of the commodities and RBOB and all that. But on the other hand, we're heading into summer, but it's not going to be that much longer. People are gonna have to think about fall and winter. And then you look at how crazily incompetent the current administration's approach to energy is, but it actually looks good in some ways compared to what's going on in Germany and places in Europe. Now, granted, they're starting to go the other way, but we may have a lower WTI price and net gas and all the components going wild in Europe as we approach later in the summer. So I don't see how oil can go down and stay down. If they can undo the Ukrainian war and all that and the sanctions, then I can see it. But X that I don't I don't know if that means it can't go below ninety-two or what the you know bottom number yeah. is. But
2: look, we agree with the structural issues. I agree that I don't know, have to wait and see that maybe this correction is the last window to accumulate pieces of businesses, which is what a share is, a pieces of well-run businesses that are going to be required for the next five to 10 years, no matter what all the woke evangelists say. We're going to need them. And by the way, many of these large oil and gas companies are not sitting there waiting to be punched in the face by the climate transition and ESG. They've been investing in so much climate-related technology and everything else with their enormous cash flows growing, which, which makes perfect sense. But I, I'm with you, but I'll just make an observation. And it's, it's the way so many of the best macro investors that the three of us know and the, that I've worked with for, gosh, 25 years, it's not the obvious that's important. It's not the stuff that everyone's talking about. It's when something happens that nobody's talking about and then they just poo-poo it. And it's like, well, okay, we could be the greatest believers in the structural energy supply shortage. You're dead right, Bill, you have to imagine that it's going to be a really difficult uh, northern winter for so many countries, not least Europe. We'll come to that one sec. But even so, a whole bunch of things for the first time this year, last Thursday, Friday, they went on sale. So somebody knows something. Somebody knows something. Energy markets are very, very clever very well connected. I won't say an insider's market in the legal sense. It's not that at all, but it is an insider's market, right? People can see the cargos. People can see what's moving around. And I just observed that falls off the best part of 10 bucks. And, oh, it's just one of those things. Well, I'm sorry. I think it's quite a material change in sentiment. And, you know, for, for Biden... Um, I hoping he's not riding a bike while he's in Saudi Arabia but for Biden but but for the president for the president to uh, to get on a plane uh, to Riyadh is quite an arduous trip uh, to meet apologize and grovel before Prince MBS and say hey mate you know give us some more oil and Prince MBS is going to say okay give us some more whatever so we can sort out your men whatever right but he wouldn't do it unless he was really confident that Prince MBS is going to give him more, right? And we've already seen the Saudis pre-announce what they're going to increase supply. So just another reason why, why would he bother to make that trip when frankly he's not up for it, unless he was quite confident he was going to get a result?
1: You know, I I saw you amusing that, I think in the most recent issue of Mm. Notes from a Small Island. That's right. And I was going to say, On the other hand, and this is not to pick on the guy, but he has shown an ability to make the wrong decision at every turn. And if you go through the administration and all the key positions, there's nobody that inspires confidence. So I would say it's just as likely he's going on a hope that something happens. And there's no guarantee he's going to get what he wants. If it worked, it'd be the first thing they've done that worked. And they might just be doing it just for politics, for all I know. So I think to assume they're going to get their own way there is a, a potentially a stretch.
2: Bill, you could well be right. I'm just observing that something changed in price last week. And oh, okay I, I okay. Don't okay. Well, that's, married, that's all okay. I'm saying. Okay, okay. I, I'm I see just the saying connect- that
1: Okay, I get your there,
2: there's, yeah. There's something different. And when there's something different that people sort of poo-poo or rubbish and say, oh, it doesn't matter, I'm like, okay. I think, I think for those of us trying to be less wrong and staying in the game and, and, and just be nimble, you just got to look for these little things at the margin and just be very open-minded. And by the way, the same thing goes about my discussion about the Bank of Japan. I'm not saying that the Bank of Japan will abandon yield curve control. I'm just saying that my sense is it will become more difficult for them to keep it because I think Corroda as well, is likely to be overcome by this global inflation impulse as well, even though, of course, Japan's starting from a much lower base. And you're seeing this. Oh, by the way, just uh, something you may have seen last week. um, Obviously, uh, a survey compiled by the Japanese opposition, but Kyoto News said uh, 58% of Japanese consumers have an unfavorable rating of Kuroda. And I replied and said, One hundred percent of yen bears have a very favourable rating of Mr. Kuroda, (laughs) which is kind of the world we're in, right? Um, But look, I think. um, But look, I'm just saying that Grant always, always in these situations, the left tail will speak for itself. Who amongst us would be surprised if financial conditions continue to tighten, if expensive stocks, to use a phrase, NGMI? right? And you know, and a lot of things get hit. And Bill, as you know so well, when you were trying to educate all those people with Silicon Investor, which was the most fantastic effort from the late 90s onwards, and you were trying to provide a, a, an early example of community service saying, look, do you really know what's going on here? Do you understand how earnings are massaged? Do you understand what's at risk? And it was a brilliant, brilliant effort that you put out every day. And of course, people don't want to listen in a bull market, and then all of a sudden they're all over you. But the point is this I mean, you think about markets, and we've had, you know, just like 2000 to 2001. So I'll come to the second bit in a second, but 2000, 2001, and Bill, you can correct me here, you had the multiples come down. And a lot of people thought, oh, fantastic. bed's dovish, multiples have come down. X, Y, Z, my favorite tech stock is 30 to 40% cheaper on various valuation optics or metrics, um, I'll have a nibble. And then margins crashed, right? And then margins collapsed. And then you got the next leg down in O102. So we've had, unsurprisingly, a derating of so many things over the past, well, it started last September, October, when some of these high-flying hypergrowth stocks, you know, when people realised that it was non-trend, they did what they should do. They started to derate, even if people thought it. And you think, given what's happening with inflation right now, that there's a high chance that, gosh, we've reached peak peak margins. Input costs are rising. At some point, the US consumer is going to say, nah, I don't think I want that anymore. So we've had the multiple compression, if you will, and the valuations have come down. But now I think there's a chance that margins come a lot lower. And need I remind both of you or, or listeners that margins now are a hell of a lot higher than they were 20-odd years ago, yeah. right? But we, we should, you know, be asking these questions. And, and, you know, just on, again, there's things that are happening that should be self-evident and obvious. You know, think in military terms, many of the soldiers have been taken out and shot. And up until recently, the market was entirely reliant on the generals, you know, think f- f- fangs. And now the generals have looked around and they're under attack and they've realised all the soldiers have left the battlefield. So, you know, there's nothing behind the generals. So if the generals continue to de-rate, you know, here we are and we've got a very different and difficult situation. But again, you know, the left tail of this, the tight financial conditions, the wider credit spreads, the certain leveraged loans under pressure, so much of this is, is to be expected. And the hardest thing, and gosh, I know I've said this on every conversation we've had, but the hardest thing when you've got heightened uncertainty It's not just to be camped in the left tail. It's to try, try, try to keep an open mind about, gosh, something might go right or could go right. And it's really, it's difficult to do, but I think that's one of the things we all need to focus on over the next six months. You know, is is there any glimmer of hope? Is there any signs that inflation might be coming down? We know it's going to be difficult, but, hey, you know, if the oil price can stop going up, that doesn't hurt.
0: James, can I ask you a question? Does the crash in cryptos matter? in the broader sense? I mean, obviously, in many ways it doesn't, but it's such a sizable collapse in terms of the money that's been vaporized that that potentially might impact others. Now, this might be a very simple no from you. It doesn't matter. But I'm just curious to get your sense seeing as it's such a, a headline grabber at the moment.
2: I don't think it matters to the broader financial system. Right. I mean, the whole point of it was a separate parallel financial system. So, what you know, at risk of being harsh, why should we care? But I want to say a couple of things about that. And there's very, very few, maybe a handful, maybe two handfuls at a pinch, macro investors who have never blown up and made money through multiple cycles. And unsurprisingly, they're pragmatic. They are relentless in trying to refine their process to make time to read or think or just not trade for weeks at a time if they're not understanding something. And as we moved over the last decade, you know, out of necessity with central banks buying assets, we're in a low realized volatility world, low implied volatility world. Frankly, there just wasn't much to do other than whatever the central banks told you. And that's the reality. And then along comes this extraordinary trading asset with high realized volatility, which means high implied volatility. And you can have three or four goes a day. And be wrong three times out of four and then double your money the fourth time welcome to crypto and it's no surprise that the trading skills that made fortunes in traditional macro assets were able to harvest extraordinary profits out of this new high volatility asset and i don't think it's a secret to say that many of the world's finest macro investors many of them also some of them completely invisible made more money out of trading crypto and NFTs than their entire career. Uh, Why? Because it was another high volatility asset and they know how to trade that. The reason they were so successful is because they're pragmatists. But as I think we've all noticed, um, that arena tends to be dominated by fanatics. And the fanatic is the man, generally the man, who can only keep one idea in their head at a time, right? And that's not a good place to be in psychologically if you're trying to generate sustainable long-run returns. And, you know, that worries me a bit because I wonder how many people have been lulled into this. And just to give you a hard anecdote about what's going on, I saw a couple of clients of mine uh, in New York, well, I saw several clients of mine in New York in May, a couple of whom quietly understood the game understood crypto, understood NFTs, and played the game to the edge. And they independently said, we're out. And I said, well, that's extraordinary because you've been trying to convince me to do it for six or seven years, and I haven't. Um, You've done well. You've played the game, and you're out. Why? And both of them said it was February when people started trading canned farts in the metaverse. And they said... That, to us, was peak silly. When people are actively trading can farts in the metaverse, paying with Ethereum or whatever, it's like, you know what? This is so stupid. I'm out. And that was before we had this move lower. Now, these people, by the way, are not out of all the blockchain and all that. They still believe in it at a price. But it's the reminder of how so many people view this market. And I'd just advise that as much as people want to believe that there's a whole macro community that are really behind this, I would say to the smartest ones in this community, it's just another trade. It's just another trade overly populated by fanatics. And like any market, the way to uh, the way to avoid the worst drawdowns, uh, the way to be less wrong is being pragmatic. And I'm afraid, Grant, I don't see too many pragmatists in that space. And if I may, I was hoping you'd ask me about this because I want to read a quote and it's from 1840. And it was a, an observer on the vortex of speculation that gripped English railway stocks in the 1840s. And the observer wrote, the few quiet men who remained uninfluenced by the speculation of the time were, in not a few cases, even reproached for doing injustice to their families by declining to help themselves from the stores of wealth that were poured out on all sides. In other words, have fun staying poor. Exactly. Right. Right. Right? <laughs> right? right? And that's, that's, from a, that's, that's a quote, and it reminds us that there's nothing new under the sun. Excesses, people get too pessimistic. They get too optimistic about the economic outlook, about markets. You know, there's always something to do at a price. But I'm watching what's happening in crypto with interest. Um, there are any number of rug pulls going on. Of course, there are. Of course, there are. The world is changing, right? The world's changing. It's different. And central banks are not bluffing. So there's a shakedown afoot, and it's going to be interesting to see what the spillovers are. But of course, when you ask what are the implications for markets, I think you might be asking what are the implications for the broader financial system. And I, and I have to say, I'm not sure I can think of too many for the system, but for markets, Grant, look, correlations are changing, and if crypto generically is under pressure, then you'd imagine that certain related uh, Bitcoin-sensitive equities are going to be under pressure. You're going to imagine that certain still very expensive tech stocks, they're down a lot, are going to be under pressure because it's all part of the same, dare I say, speculative ecosystem. And the final point is, I don't know if we have time to discuss it, but the days of, uh, as Drew Dixon uh, wonderfully put it, on Twitter a couple of weeks back. Actually, no, I think it was Cliff Asness. I'm sorry, but Drew Dixon uh, rewrote it. And I think it's a wonderful point. The days of volatility laundering are over. Volatility laundering is when you create a gigantic lever, the momentum fund with a large chunk of private tech investments, which because there's limited mark-to-market risk has, by definition, lower realised volatility. And then you take very large public market bets with leverage as well, and you kind of blend the two together in one of these so-called crossover funds and you present a number. Now, like mezzanine ABS CDOs 15 years ago, putting all your risk in a non-mark-to-market thing is great until it isn't. And we're just starting to peel back the layers of leverage. We're starting to see that one very big US bank lent against the private tech collateral as well, but there are all sorts of things going on. And it would appear to me that we're probably at the front edge of the mark to market of these private tech positions, which I'm afraid the only way they can hedge them is by selling more of the public stuff. And we've got a pretty nasty little feedback loop going on here. But again, how could anyone be surprised? And to see the scramble from these very clever and they are very clever venture capital firms like the sequoias and others basically saying right you all need to knuckle down and you now need to focus on cash flow oh really (laughs) really oh you mean we need now oh oh oh, okay well that's great uh and you need to focus on operating margins oh so it's not about eyeballs Um, It's not about how many likes I had on that uh, YouTube video or stuff like that. It's actually, you mean we need to focus on the business? Yes. Okay. So how are you going to do that? Are you going to try to raise prices on your end users? How are you going to do it? And what happens if the end users say, no, I I don't want to pay any more for that?
0: Or I can't pay any more for that.
2: Well, Exactly. And we're just on the front edge of that transition and there will be again you know keeping an eye on the right tail there will be some heretofore hideously expensive technology businesses that will find a way to make it and we've got to keep an open mind about those but there's going to be an awful lot of them that find that they really struggle to generate the necessary cash flow and operating margins not to generate not to you know be re-rated but frankly the kind of cash flow and operating margins required to appease their investors.
0: Yeah, and and to yeah. stay in business. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's going to be a, a tricky transition, and it'll be very difficult for a lot of people that are overexposed to that. But I come back to the obvious point: is it? Are we surprised? Are we really surprised that these things are being roughed up a bit, or that? it's emerging that people have used silly leverage or got a bit greedy. And we can't be surprised too much, I think.
0: Well, I, th- I think that's the moral. We shouldn't be surprised, but as we're seeing now, many people are. And that's, um, that's surprising in and of itself, I suspect.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, it's, I find it. Uh, I've been involved in financial markets for 30 years and I, I find this one of the most interesting and challenging periods because, there's, again, a lot of, lot of difficult things happening, some self-evident, and then trying to imagine the way forward. Look, let's face it, it's hard to be upbeat at this moment, which means we should probably be trying harder to keep an open mind, right? And this is the other thing, you know, go back to the crypto discussion. I'm afraid for all the talk about the democratisation of finance, let's be blunt, it's been the democratisation of speculation, Democratization of gambling, democratization of leverage, and most of all, the democratization of bullshit.
0: Amen. The perfect way to finish because we've run out of time. Uh, I know, Bill, you've got a hard stop. James, mate, this has been absolutely fantastic, as always. I mean, it's a, it's a real treat to steal some of your time. And I mean, I know both Bill and I really, really appreciate you giving this up for us.
2: Well, I, I appreciate the time you've given me on Father's Day. It's great to see you both. The last thing I'll just say is that, shockingly, there is an Aiken Advisors website coming. Stand by. Careful now. I just – careful now. you pivoted. you pivoted. Thing. Oh, my <laughs> God.
1: We're going to break the internet. We're going to break the internet.
2: Well, it's going to – It's look, the fact that I've waited this long to, to build a website has got to be the top in something, right? <laughs>
0: See, see, I would I would, I would say I would say this is this could be the, the, the right tail risk.
2: It's the, actually,
1: DeFi, yeah. it's, it, it's the start of DeFi it's it's the start of 3.0. You're kicking it off.
2: Dude, I, I I tell you what, it'd be a it'd be a strange day if Vacant advises is in the metaverse or something, but you never know. <laughs> um you know. But I um but look, that's that's all coming and you know, I, I've waited this long because I just wanted to be sure that the internet was for real. <laughs> well, I'm glad
1: you didn't rush into it.
2: You can't. You can't be too careful, right? Anyway, look enough enough of my nonsense. Um, if there's anything, you know, I
1: wanted to ask you one quick question. I I've, I've, I didn't want yes, to get in the end. You're but, the guy um, we've. You're the guy we've stopped for.
2: <laughs> I, I know, I know, but I but
1: uh, we can get the short answer. Is is the SNB going
2: to liquidate their fangs? Ah, I looked at that on Friday. They own seventy-one million shares of Apple. For starters, and for starters, I mean, why wouldn't you, as a central bank? I mean, it makes so much sense. If Doesn't, I could print I money, I'd have them.
1: What are they going to do with them, though? Are they going to sell them or keep them?
2: Well, hi, hi. It's Wolfgang from Zurich. Yeah, yeah. I want your best. I want your best big shaggy in, in 70, seventy-one. 71 million (laughs) Apple shares. Hello? 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 Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. It's not big.
1: (laughs) I know, but it's worth thinking about because... No, it is.
2: It is. But the counter-argument, look, the counter-argument is ridiculously Apple turns over about 100 million shares a day, right? Now, why is anybody's guess? But But look, to put a point on it, the signaling effect, the SMB saying, hey, here you go, fellas, have 71 million shares of, of Apple. Well, you know, all the, all the algorithms would be out in front of that. There'd be plenty more of that to come. I don't think it's imminent. Okay. Um, but it, it's just an example of the way central banks were compelled to do things and to buy things that they were never designed to do. Okay. Um, that's the problem. Um, but look, we have, we didn't talk about QT or anything. I think that's comp- I think so much of that is overblown. We know the Fed's hawkish. We know the Fed's hawkish, and, and reducing the balance sheet just amplifies that signal, right? Okay, fantastic.
0: Enough. All right, matey, I will be sure to put the website in. I presume it's the one that's had under construction written on it for a long time.
2: Well, it's actually quite – I'm quite impressed by it. If you have a look, it's acondvisors.com. Yeah. Well, that, mate, anyway, great stuff, mate. Thanks. Thanks. Really enjoyed Thanks it. Good guys. on you, mate.
0: Mate, um, as always, just, you know, James being James, he, he is a wonder, he really is. It's
1: not very often that we can talk to someone who's knowledgeable on a, uh, a complex, intertwined macro topic and have it be extremely timely. Usually it's about, yeah. well, what if this, that and the other, yeah. and although yeah. we had a fair amount of that. We, we're quite fortunate in
0: our timing here. We were, and, it, and his ability to communicate what is incredibly complex stuff is just, it's legendary. Well, mate, listen, I know you've got to run. Um, that's all from us for another episode of the Endgame. And thanks to James Aitken, as always, for giving us his time. That website, bookmark it for when it's ready, is aitkinadvisors.com. Um, uh, the more James Aitken you have in your life, the better off you're going to be. Trust me, that is, that is a promise to you. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Should you not be doing so already, you'll find me at TTMYGH. And
1: I'm at Fletcap.
0: At Fletcap. He remains. And done anybody imposter him because there's no point. There's only one. It
1: only happened once so far. I only got, I only got one imposter. So. Well,
0: that's, see, that's because you're impossible to impersonate. Idiots like me get them all the time, but everyone thinks, no, you know what? No, no one's going to fall for this. There's only one flat <laughs> All right, matey. I'll see you again soon. Okay, great. Take care.